So you didn't invest in GameStop is what you're talking about? No, Nick, I wish I had the time, honestly, but I'm sure that some folks, uh, if they, you know, if people invested in uh, American engagement, they could get a similar return on investment, but just they'd have to wait a couple more years <laughs> than a couple hours on, on their phones. This is the Orientalist Express podcast, episode 31. This is the show that brings together young professionals from all over the world to discuss a variety of topics related to the Middle East, American foreign policy, and international relations. The goal of this podcast is to make American foreign policy interesting and easy to understand for the people who don't follow it too closely. I'm Nicholas Hayen, founder of the Orientalist Express site and president of the board of directors for the Minnesota International NGO Network. I'm joined today in the virtual studio by special guest star Nizar Jamal. Nizar serves as the Midwest Outreach Director at the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition. USGLC is a nonprofit outreach organization dedicated to promoting the benefits of U.S. foreign policy and the federal international affairs budget, and showing how those programs benefit the average American. Avid listeners of the podcast will recall that we had USGLC Heartland Director Alex Grant on the show previously. So Nizar works alongside Alex and dozens of other USGLC staff members who are committed to helping Americans understand the critical question, foreign aid, what's it worth? So be sure to check out their website at usglc.org to learn more about their excellent work. So Nizar, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you ended up at the USGLC. Well, thanks so much for having me, Nick. I really appreciate it. Um, and you know, we've worked together on a Quite a few things, so I'm so excited uh, to be on the podcast. But uh, as you mentioned, I'm the Midwest Outreach Director here at the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition, um, and I kind of ended up here in an unconventional way. Um, you know, I did all my education uh, in foreign policy, international relations, my bachelor and master's, and all that good stuff. But before USGLC, I ended up working for social media companies and their public policy efforts in response to. Uh, the 2020 uh, U.S. election. Um, And as we know, the election did not end on time. So when it finally did end, uh, I decided to return to kind of my foreign policy roots. And at USGLC, I direct our advocacy and outreach efforts across Michigan, Wisconsin, and in your home state of Minnesota. I help grow and engage with our state advisory committees, which are comprised of business, humanitarian, NGO, veterans, and other grass tops leaders in these states. For example, in Minnesota, we've got folks from across the state, and our state committee is chaired by former Senator Norm Coleman and the CEO of Land Lakes, Beth Ford. And these state advisory committees help us advocate for American global engagement at the federal level. I guess I should mention I'll probably be joining that at the end of the year as part of the uh, the Next Gen Global Leaders Fellowship Program that you have at USGLC. So yes. it'll be uh, pretty exciting for me to join the ranks of such esteemed people. But um, We're excited to have you, Nick. It's going to be great to have you on the committee with uh, likes, the like of folks that we have from Minnesota. It's going to be great. Yeah, and as you mentioned, so you know we've obviously been working together in the past a little bit on um, some of these shared projects. And as part of those outreach efforts, you know, USGLC recently hosted an event with my organization, the Minnesota International NGO Network, along with Global Minnesota to highlight how diplomacy and development benefits Minnesotans. And uh, for those who weren't able to attend, do you think you could just give some of the key takeaways that were provided in that discussion with uh, Congressman Tom Emmer? Yeah, of course. And thanks again to you guys at Maine and Global Minnesota. Um, The partnership really is what made the event such a success. Um, So for folks that didn't tune in, we brought together 
former Minnesota Senator Norm Coleman, um, the governor of Minnesota, Tim Walls, and Congressman Tom Emmer for a conversation, like you said, about why and how American development, diplomacy, and engagement benefits folks right here in Minnesota. Um, and one thing I think I should start off with is that there isn't a, exactly, this isn't like a group of elected officials you think would be in agreement on a lot of stuff. We've got a former Republican senator, a Democratic governor, and the uh, National Republican Congressional Campaign uh, Chair, Congressman Tom Emmer, all having a conversation where they um, agree is kind of something you don't see anymore. Um, and it showed that there's both Republicans and Democrats that care about this issue and that America needs to be a leader around the world and that what we need are development and diplomacy programs to be fully funded in order to do that. So, as I said, Congressman Emmer is also the NRCC chair, so he's a big voice in the GOP. And one thing that really struck me about what he said was how open he was about how his position on this has changed, right? A lot of times, you know, folks will say, oh, you know, I decided this and I'm never changing my mind. But he talked about how he used to be the guy on the radio saying, why are we spending money abroad? Why aren't we keeping the money at home? Why do we care about what's going on in the rest of the world? And it wasn't until the USJLC took him on a trip to Africa that he saw firsthand how American development and diplomacy are so critical. So he told a story about how he went to a village in, I believe, Kenya, and he met, um, you know, a community there that had benefited from a small USAID project, and that this community had not just become more economically stable and been able to produce its own, um, be self-sustaining, but the community had been able to send the girls and the families there to school. So it would end a cycle of subsistence farming and allow women and girls to become leaders in their communities as well. And that this small USAID program not only lifted the community's economic potential, but its societal potential as well and allowed the next generation of folks from there to lead better lives. And that was just a powerful statement, right, to hear from Tom Emmerich is here that this small, again, this small investment had not just changed the people's lives there, but had changed his perspective on what we're able to do with this money. And another thing that he talked about is that when we send money to the international affairs budget, we actually end up saving money on our military spending. And he said something, you know, I'll paraphrase, but essentially for every dollar we're sending to the international affairs budget is one less gun that he has to appropriate for the Department of Defense, which is really important. And I think there's actually a statistic that was brought up that for every dollar we spend on international, the international affairs budget, $16 is saved from spending on defense, which is, you know, I'm not one of the folks that was on Robin Hood during the craze with the investments and all that. <laughs> but if I see at $1 and then a $16 return, that's pretty incredible, right? Like, I think most folks can get behind that. I'm not a math person, but I think that's a pretty good return on investment. And, and lastly, from the event is that it was bipartisan and almost at some points nonpartisan, right? Like it's folks that are just coming together on these American values that we should engage with and lead the rest of the world. And that we have to kind of have a conversation with ourselves is who do we want to be as a country? And there seems to be this bipartisan and broad national agreement from these folks that we want to be a place that leads, that is engaged with the rest of the world and is properly funding our development and diplomacy programs. So I think it was a great event. I really enjoyed having all those folks there. And I know like we had folks from our advisory committee and our next gen program like yourself that were able to engage uh, with the congressman. No, that and I agree that I think that event went uh, really well. I was very happy to be a part of that and to uh, to discuss that with Tom, with uh, Congressman Emmer. 
And I think what what also struck out to me in in his discussion was just how how little that investment was and how big of an impact it had and how those returns, you know, that impact funnels back into the global economy, into global security, into global public health. And just how how far we still have to go in some of those programs because, you know, he was I think he was mentioning that they were saying, well, we need a refrigerator for for all the excess milk that we're producing. And someone wanted to give them one right on the spot. And they just said, okay, but we don't have, you know, the infrastructure to support that yet. And so that really highlights that, you know, these small investments can do so much, but there's still structural work that needs to be done to help maximize the return on investment that we can get from those um, from those programs. No, Nick, that's so true. I mean, it's, it's constantly a, a definitely an uphill climb, but it's one that we need to be, you know, leading on. And I think we've seen over time what happens when we don't lead and when we don't make those investments. And so I think that it's so important that we're, you know, as we continue to understand, you know, for example, of course it was goodwill when they said, oh, we want to send you a fridge, but the folks in the in the village knew that it was, they needed the electricity, they needed the people to take care of it. So kind of having those more nuanced understandings of development as someone who studied that in school, I think also as well as just as a side note, it's important to really bring in cultural context understanding, which we're seeing actually in the international affairs budget that was proposed this year by the administration, is for greater diversity and cultural comprehension across the diplomatic corps and across the uh, this all the programs that are funded by this budget. Because uh, as we have a more, like I said, nuanced understanding of the world around us, we have as much goodwill as we can have, we have to make sure these programs are impactful and actually deliver for the community is there on the ground, as well as helping us right here at home. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's been a huge focus in international development now is just getting the people on the ground who are the actual stakeholders affected by this, getting them in that discussion room to say, actually, this is what we really need. You know, it's one thing for us far away in the United States to say, well, we think you need X, Y, and Z, but we really have to consult with the people on the ground to see what is it that would actually help you the most. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's being done in international development now more than ever, which is very encouraging. Definitely. So uh, walk me through the What's It Worth campaign. So I guess what are some of the key takeaways you think everyone should remember from this discussion? Right. So for folks that aren't aware, our What's It Worth campaign is highlighting a foreign aid and what's it worth to the American people. So at this, one of the things we did at this event, as well as having this great conversation, is we kind of launched the campaign in the state of Minnesota. So there'll be an op-ed coming out in the Star Tribune, I think, next week. Uh, which will be from uh, a couple of folks that we have on our advisory committee um, that will really, I believe it's going to be former Secretary of State Mark Ritchie, and I believe it's going to be former Senator Norm Coleman as well, who have written this um, op-ed showing why, what's it, what foreign aid is worth. But we also, at the event, highlighted, you know, we had Tony Sanef from the Sanef Foundation, we had Jonathan Weinhagen from the Minneapolis Regional Chamber, and we had... Um, folks from Land O'Lakes as well, kind of all coming together to show like this multi-dimensional, multi-sector, what foreign aid is worth to these folks. And, you know, from a broader perspective, the world has really changed in the past year, which I think we're all sick of hearing, but something that we have to live with. Um, You know, there's been a global pandemic, democracy across the world has been under attack, the natural disasters are on the rise, and global competition is, is skyrocketing. So all of these impact American families' health, safety, and economic interests every single day. 
And we're learning, and something you know, a lot of folks have known, but more and more Americans are trying, are now understanding that we can't ignore what happens outside our borders because when we don't show up, other people are going to come and fill the void. So we have to invest in diplomacy, development, and global health, and we can stand with our partners and allies in doing that, helping open new markets, getting more Americans back to work, and preventing the next pandemic, which I think we can all <laughs> agree is something we would like to do. Um, and it's a, the foreign aid itself is a proven investment um, to build a healthier, safer, and more prosperous America. Um, so at USJLC, we think it's not just the right thing to do, but it's the smart thing to do. And I can kind of dive in there for a sec if you'll indulge me. Um, but the campaign is highlighting the countless efforts of U.S. investments in development, diplomacy, global health, and American global engagement in everyone's daily lives and showcasing why these investments matter to Americans throughout our country and not just inside the Beltway. Um, so as we engage with members of Congress from across the country, Americans continue to be proud when we have these conversations. They're proud of their community's global connections and are eager to share their stories of how they're globally connected and, and their pride in that. So from a health perspective, and I think I'll just touch on health, economy, and security and just briefly, is that from a health perspective, it really is how we prevent the next pandemic in an interconnected world. One of the things we were talking about in the event is a virus can spread around the world in 36 hours, and then it's, there's no way to contain it. Um, for, but for example, we know that when we make investments in pandemic prevention, they work. PEPFAR, which is run out of... Um, which has went out of the State Department and USAID, has saved 20 million lives and built a global health infrastructure that supported the response to the West Africa Ebola outbreak in 2014. And I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that started in the George Bush administration, George Bush number two. And from an economic perspective, with 95% of the world's consumers outside the U.S., it's this opportunity for Americans to sell our products in new markets overseas, which, as we know, a basic first day of economics, if there's more markets overseas, that creates jobs at home. And foreign aid helps create strong trading partners for American business. There's a statistic that I think is really important to, for folks to understand is that 11 of America's top 15 export markets are former recipients of U.S. foreign assistance. So just to like really ram that home, 11 of our 15 top trading partners used to be recipients of money that comes from this budget, right? So I think that's pretty powerful. I mean, this is countries for, that receive money during the Marshall Plan. This is countries in Africa and South Asia and Latin America and Central America. Central America. They are now our trading partners and they are creating jobs right here at home. And lastly, from a security perspective, you know, at USGLC and just, you know, in time in Washington, America's top military leaders are the first folks we talk to to call for more investment in diplomacy and development programs because it helps stop threats before they reach our shores. So Congressman Emmer said something similar about how every dollar we spend on this, he's saving money that he's going to send to the DOD. And it's true. If, if we fund these programs more robustly, we get to spend less on defense. And foreign aid is less than 1% of all federal spending. Um, and like I said earlier, I'm going to really hammer this statistic throughout the, the podcast. But for every dollar we spend to prevent conflict or on this budget, it saves an estimated $16 in response costs. So that's kind of a longer winded, like what the campaign is about. But I think it really highlights how important this is. So I think what was one of the 
one of the best success stories was actually South Korea, right? Where after after the Korean War, you know, South Korea was essentially just in devastation, and U.S. foreign aid helped to lift South Korea out and to bring it into one of the strongest economies in the entire world in only a few decades, of which is one of our strongest trading partners now. So, um, right, I think that's definitely one of the one of the best success stories we have. And you mentioned PEPFAR, so for everyone, that's the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, which you were right was under the Bush administration. Um, I actually put that a little bit of a uh, describer of that in my latest blog post about specifically programs that benefit Africa the most, um, PEPFAR being one of them, which originally was tasked with essentially, essentially trying to end the AIDS epidemic, especially in Africa. And we found that, um, you know, as, as you said, it saved, what, 20 million lives, something to that effect? Yeah, 20 million lives um, since it started. And it also, like you said, it wasn't one of the benefits of all of these programs is they build an infrastructure and an ecosystem. So even though PEPFAR, like you said, is designed to prevent HIV AIDS, it actually helped with the Ebola outbreak response in 2014. Um, so there's this, you know, it's it, like we said, we make an investment, we're not just throwing something at the wall and saying this is a band-aid for a problem. Most of these programs are building long-term solutions and long-term infrastructure. So I think that's part of the, like you said, part of the the growth in the international development space that is also now being reflected by these U.S. government programs. Yeah, that's phenomenal. And I'm sure it's being used to combat COVID now, right? Yeah, I mean, COVID response around the world is, is something that also is, you know, part of why we think this budget is important because we need to, although, you know, dealing with COVID is top of mind, we also, you know, we hear about almost weekly some new strange disease in a corner of the world that we never think will affect us. And we know the last time that we ignored it, we ended up the way we are now. So I think that there's, there's a, there's a definite greater understanding nowadays for funding programs that help root out and stop um, epidemics and pandemics. Or just the next variant of a virus that's already here. Yes, I, I can't, can't fault you there. I think we are all so tired. But um, the, I mean, it's true. Like these programs, and one of the things is when you tell people, oh, like, you know, somebody, somebody at the State Department or USAID is working on virus prevention, people are probably shocked. But I mean, this is, this is really what some folks' entire career is doing is working with foreign governments, working with the WHO, working with other health agencies to make sure that we have um, the correct resources to respond to this. I mean, the other day, I just saw in Guinea, in West Africa, there's a new um, virus that's transmitted um, through the exchange of bodily fluids, and they've had an outbreak there, but we've already responded and sent folks to help them mitigate and understand what that um, is looking like. So when we, to try and nip things in the bud, for lack of a better word, you know? Good, you had me had me worried there for a second. It's like, oh boy, another another pandemic. Um, so I know you've hit on some of these already, but what would you say are the key points you think every person should know about that international affairs budget? I mean, the top line is, of course, it's less than 1% of the federal budget, but in response, we get full funding for USAID and the State Department and just a variety of other programs. So what are some of those key points you think everyone should just know right off the top of their heads? Sure. And I'm sitting here nodding like folks at home can see me, so just ignore me for that for a second. But <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> there is... There's fo- uh, this funding is for, like you said, the Department of State, the U.S. Agency for International Development, but also things that you might not think of. The U.S. Trade and Development Agency, which helps um, create new markets for goods across the world for American businesses. And I can touch on some of those uh, specifics later. But um, this also funds Food for Peace, the Peace Corps. Most of it, you know, I won't speak with a broad brush, but a lot of what we 
do around the world that isn't military-focused comes from this budget. Um, The administration and the Senate just agreed on a $63.7 billion funding for the budget this year, which sounds huge, like almost $64 billion. If I had heard that too, I'm going to think that's that's so much money. But it is less than 1% of federal spending, as you said. I mean, we spend trillions on defense, for example, right? And this is something that has, in my opinion, just as much, if not more, efficacy. And we're putting in such a small investment for a massive return. And it's all really about the future. And I think, you know, like you're part of our next-gen global leaders program. We want folks who are, are younger to care about this because, you know, for folks like you and myself, like we were born, you know, not in 1945 when a lot of the folks that used to make decisions were. And it's about the future mm-hmm. for us. Like the world is constantly changing as we know. So it's about preventing this budget prevent, will help prevent the next pandemic. It's about stabilizing countries around the world. Not so, not just that they're, you know, we can say, oh, we get good governance practices or we made this country a better place, which is great. But it's also opening up new markets for American goods. So it's a give and take, right? We've got to put in that initial investment to help folks out, but then they're going to pay it back to us in so many different ways. And lastly, and this is something I think we really talked about on Tuesday with Congressman Emmer and Governor Walls, is that this is a values question, right? We kind of have to look in the mirror as a country and decide where we want to go. We're seeing, you know, folks on both sides of the aisle talking about the rise of China. And if we don't continue to try and lead and put investments in this space, we will become number two to China or, you know, to other countries that are invested in this. So I think that that's exactly what people should know, that this budget is 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 an investment in the future, not just of the world, but specifically right here, folks at home in the United States. Yeah, and I think that speaks to even just the broader question of why American global leadership is so important, because... You know, you think maybe other countries could take care of these problems, but but really, you know, it's it's up to the United States to to take the charge in that, because if if we're not leading, then other nations, like you said, China, for instance, who they don't share the same values that that we do, and at least the Chinese government, I should say, doesn't share the same values that we do, and they're not going to do things that are in the interest of the American people. I mean, that's just not going to happen. That's not that's not part of of why they're engaged abroad. So that's really why I think America needs to be at, you know, the head table in those discussions to help lead that charge, not just because, you know, it's it's the right thing to do, just morally speaking, but because it is in our interest to do it. No, that's that's perfect, Nick. I think also, you know, for example, one of the ways that I, I hear from folks a lot is simply, do you want to live in a world that's in a values-based democratic system that we're helping lead along with our allies or or one that's kind of more dominated by the Chinese Communist Party, right? I think we can all make a pretty easy answer to that question. Um, and just as a side note on, you know, this this leading that we're talking about and why it's important to make sure there's no void, we have a lot of conversations with folks around the world um, about these programs and about how they see things. And with also with a lot of Americans that have done international work like yourself and folks across um, the United States, and what they tell us is they'll see, for example, a, like a Chinese road or a Chinese built port or, you know, some part of the Belt and Road Initiative that's in a country. And mm-hmm. but what they'll hear from the people still, and this is where I think America's leadership kind of ties in, is that people would prefer, they'll literally tell us, we would prefer if the Americans were here helping us or we would prefer to take the money from the U.S. Because China always has all these strings attached and also just from a values and and kind of perception of, of the two countries, 
America, in most parts of the world, is still viewed as the place folks want to, you know, look up to or to receive help from or to learn from. Um, one last brief side note, when I was living in Jordan, um, the Americans, we, through USAID, had uh, done a lot of programs about water sustainability and more sustainable farming practices because the country is quite short of water. I think one of the world's most water scarce places. And, you know, there was a big uh, initiative at the time for the Chinese to come in and build a big infrastructure project. And this is the Middle East, right? America is not exactly the most popular country when it comes to talking to people in the Middle East. And they were like, no, we'd still prefer the Americans to, to help us like so we can become self-sustainable because when the Chinese are coming in, they just take from us. They bring in their own workers. It doesn't benefit us. And so I think that's another like just to all the way arch back to earlier is a nuance that there is still people, the folks around the world want America to be leading in this space. You know, that, that really speaks to the, the two different models, the two different mindsets that the United States and China has where, you know, we we are still doing something that is in, quote unquote, our interest, but it's also we are trying to build that infrastructure for them to use for themselves as part of the global economy and not just as a way to, well, we built you a road so that we can use it for our purposes and, you know, we'll see if you can get to use it or not. It's really this, it's more of a two-way street where we're trying to form this partnership where where we're working together rather than just exploiting these countries as, as other nations would seem to do. Just the one last thing I'll say is one of the things, though, about our work is we we try and do highlight to Americans these benefits, right, that we get at home. Because sometimes we do wrap ourselves in the flag too much and say, no, we're doing this to for just to help the world. But then we get folks at home saying, OK, but why are we doing this? So it's, it's kind of where we view ourselves as an organization is to, like, explain that back to the American people and get their pulse on these issues. And, you know, when we sit down with folks and we have these conversations, like, for example, Tom Emmer, who was so against it, once he saw it in action and saw how it was benefiting folks in his home state, changed his mind completely. So that's my like final two cents on, on that one. But just to, to highlight that it's it's such an important return for Americans as well. But like you said, definitely a better model than what other countries are doing. Yeah. So I guess on that, what are some of the biggest successes of that international affairs budget and just American foreign policy in general? You know, one of the criticisms is that foreign aid spending is that we just give money away to other countries. But how do these foreign aid dollars actually help benefit people all over the world? And how does this money help people here at home? Great. And that's that is the question we get from everyone. Right. It's like, why are we sending it abroad? Why can't we investing at home? There's just been an infrastructure bill. Why didn't we add money there? Hear it all the time. This is this issue is something that I want to highlight. This the benefits are right here at home in the United States, and they're shown through who we work with across the country. The folks we have in our state advisory committees are like yourself, leaders in the humanitarian space, but they're also business leaders, NGO leaders, veterans, um, folks from every segment of American society and economy who have benefited or seen the benefits of this, even that's through their business or that's through them doing cultural exchange programs that's you know a whole variety of things and we talked about earlier that 11 of 15 of our top trading partners are former recipients of aid and i know i said that once already but just to contextualize it like you said south korea if south korea hadn't you know 
had if we hadn't done what we had done, would they have been such an incredible trading partner for us? I think we can all point to something in our house that says made in South Korea or made in Taiwan, for example, right? And this is like part of driving the global economy. And it shows that, again, to talk what we were just talking about, it's it's not an exploitative model. It's one that invests to grow countries so that they become our trading partners. Even Vietnam, which is, of course, a country we were at war with for 20 years, shows that when we make investments, these countries can now come and become our trading partners. The same, an example with a, a less, uh, more like kind of just giving was during the Marshall Plan in World War II, which sounds like 300 years ago for folks of our generation, but it's it's true. The United Kingdom, France, Germany, Italy, all of these countries received aid and are now our trading partners. And would they have been able to recover as quickly without it? I'm not sure, you know? And this is, this is across the world is where we see this. And another thing I want to bring up is this, you know, this high return on investment dollar for 16 that we're talking about. It really can't be understated. I mean, we've heard from the heads of the U.S. military, from the Department of Defense, all the folks in the Pentagon, um, you know, on our organization, we have over 200 um, high ranking generals and admirals retired or, or serving that tell us that every time we invest in this, it's saving them going on a mission around the world. It's saving on them spending the money. And, you know, as much as our folks in the military are the best in the world, they don't want to have to go fight somewhere, right? Like that's a last, that should be a last resort for us. We shouldn't mm-hmm. create the infrastructure to create stability around the world so that we don't have these problems. And, you know, it's this, one of the biggest successes apart from, you know, what I've just been mentioning, but another one is the U.S. Agency for International Development itself. I mean, this program, this uh, agency sends folks around the world to do development work and it has real impact. Folks really start seeing Ameri- the, the real face of America and see what America is doing. It's American diplomacy in action. I mean, I'm lucky enough, I, when I, when I went to graduate school, a lot of folks end up in the foreign service after. And some of my friends are, they tell me like when they meet Americans around the world, either through doing, you know, whatever we're, we're doing in that country, whereas it's teaching English, building a road, water development programs, good governance programs, you name it, people not only in, want to do the programs, but they also view this as something that, you know, changes their perception of the United States. Like I was saying earlier, and I was in Jordan, I mean, but when when I saw mm-hmm. these programs being put into action in Jordan, it did change people's perspective of the U.S. I'm not sure if you've ever been to a region seen, for example, like a refugee tent or these packaging. I was mm-hmm. kind of moved when I was driving past um, a large group of Syrian refugees living in Jordan. All their tents were U.S. aid, and it just, in simple letters, says, from the American people. It doesn't say, yeah. like, you know, it doesn't say like, oh, pay us back in five years or we're doing this because we, we want money out of you. It's just this is from the American people, not from the American government. And I think that's really just important to highlight that it changes people's perception of the United States. And lastly, in terms of the, the biggest successes and just why this is important is a security issue. Right. When we saw I know this is it's 20 years ago, it's crazy to believe at this point, we saw on 9-11 what happens when we don't have the, when we, we have instability around the world, right? For example, in Afghanistan, which we're unfortunately mm-hmm. seeing again today, but again, whole another podcast we could do on Afghanistan. I know you, you did last, uh, the last one that you just had, but the America is safer when we are engaged around the world, not just ne- necessarily militarily, but creating stability and creating good governance practices around the world. I think 
we can look at, for example, Rwanda after the genocide that happened there in that country. Rwanda's kind of become this beacon of Africa now in terms of its economy, its good governance practices, all these things. Of course, far from perfect, we all are, but it's still shown tremendous growth because it had international development assistance that is meaningful and actually was designed to grow the country's economy and from a not just from like a numbers like you know how the World Bank will say, oh, 10% growth, they must be doing great, but kind of an actual real on the ground better quality of life for the people in the country. And that's been through largely through American aid. And now we actually do one of our biggest trading partners on the continent of Africa is this small, small country, Rwanda. Um, I guess looking at the Midwest region in particular, uh, what examples can you provide of that international affairs budget providing these direct benefits to people and businesses residing here? Like I know we have, um, you know, as you mentioned, Land O'Lakes, benefits quite a bit from from these programs but um, i guess what other examples for like maybe minnesota specific can you think of oh sure thing nick this is my whole job is telling people these incredible statistics so i am ready to to roll them out for you um no but from just from before i even kind of go down that path specifically in the midwest and i think this is something that folks i mean i didn't really to be honest understand until i started learning on the job is so interconnected with the rest of the world, especially right here in Minnesota, from not just the economy, not just cultural exchange, not just demographics, but from every portion of people's lives, whether they realize it or not, they are connected with the rest of the world. For example, in Minnesota, it's from a business and growth perspective, $20 billion in goods to foreign markets was exported last year, $20 billion, right? So that's if you want to put that in you know, terms, that's one quarter of the entire spending we did on international affairs budget this year. A qu- like a quarter of it was can be you know, made up in the exports that we've done in just in Minnesota alone. In Minnesota alone, mm-hmm. one in five jobs is supported by trade. So that's, of course, uh, three quarters of a million people are employed through jobs that are supported by trade. And 145,000 folks are employed by companies that are at least 50% foreign-owned. Again, this is just in Minnesota. And from kind of a perspective that a lot of folks, maybe not in the state, would understand, is that a lot of this comes from agriculture, right? And the state is, you know, as we know, is one of the strongest in the union on agriculture. But the U.S. Export-Import Bank financed close to a billion dollars in exports just last year, from a, or not just last year, but has financed close to a billion in exports from 124 Minnesota companies. So it's 124 small businesses, medium-sized businesses in the state who receive funding from this budget in order to grow their exports and contribute to that 20 billion. The Development Finance Corporation has spent $500 million in Minnesota, so half a billion, um, for Minnesota companies to in order for them to grow their overseas investments. And kind of lastly on this business strain is is that the U.S. Trade and Development Agency facilitated, again, almost half a billion in exports from Minnesota companies, which is 1,500 jobs, supports 1,500 jobs in the state. So we're talking about jobs, tangible, good jobs that folks in the state are employed with because of funding and investments made by this budget and the returns on investment that we talked about. So it's jobs, it's growing businesses in the state, and it's also showing and highlighting how important just Minnesota is to the interconnected global economy, global exchange, and its place in the world. And from an education exchange perspective, because we do talk a lot about business because it's what folks you know, can tangibly see in terms of numbers, but 
you know, 9,000 students from Minnesota studied abroad, I believe, last year, or in 2019, the last year we've got records. And over 15,000 students came to the state from around the world. But those 15,000 students in one, contribute half a billion dollars to the Minnesota economy, which is crazy. Just 15,000 folks spent half a billion dollars in the Minnesota economy, which is which just shows, like, we didn't even pay them to come. They're paying us to come, and then they're even growing the economy while they're here. And we get international cultural and education exchange through that as well. Yeah, and, and that's that's great. I think that's an excellent overview, especially from the private sector. Um, I guess from the from the nonprofit sector where I have a little bit of visibility into, you know, so many of the um, partner organizations that Minnesota International NGO Network partners with, so many of them rely upon that international development budget or at the very least, they obviously rely on America's diplomacy abroad to help to help in their missions. Um, and we just see that, you know, there's somewhere to the effect of almost 100 international NGOs just based here in Minnesota alone. And those, you know, each one of them employs, you know, up to one, two, up to a dozen, sometimes even hundreds of different um, different people, both here and abroad. So there's quite a bit of, of um, quite a bit of benefit here in the nonprofit sector as well, just from, from a jobs aspect. And a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of the materials and support services that are purchased by those NGOs, a lot of the times it comes from right here in Minnesota, where they will use that foreign affairs funding that they get to, uh, to execute on their mission. They'll use those funds here in Minnesota to send those goods and services abroad. So it really just comes back full circle, even on the nonprofit sector as well. No, that's so true. I, and it's, uh, you know, there's, we can, list all day on all the different ways that this this funding is being kind of driven into the state's economy and growing it there. So thank you for highlighting that. I mean, it's, it is organizations like that you work with that are implementing this taxpayer money that is generating such a high return on investment. So I guess, uh, what's next for USGLC? You know, are there any special events our listeners should be aware of or anything coming up soon? Sure. Um, so we just had this great event in Minnesota on Tuesday, which I think was a great success thanks to you all. Um, on September the 28th, we have something called the uh, Heartland Summit, which is when we'll be beaming in from three different parts of the Heartland. So selfishly in my region, I believe we'll be um, in Dean Phillips Congressional District, which I believe will be in Wyzata, um, in uh, some facility there. So we'll be from coming in from Minnesota, I believe Kansas City, and somewhere in Indiana, but don't quote me exactly yet because I think we're still working it out. But we'll have from three places across the heartland, and we'll be engaging with business leaders, members of Congress, and our advisory committees, and talking about why this is so important to the heartland specifically and why folks do and should care about this um, in the region. So September 28th, bookmark that. Um, I do believe it will be virtual because of the world we're continuing to live in. Um, But we'll have more events, especially in Minnesota, Michigan, and Wisconsin as well. I encourage folks to check out our website. It's usglc.org. We've got all our events on there. We are moving in some places to some things that are mildly in person. So if folks across the country want to take a look there. Um, And yeah, it's just been, we're engaged in, I believe, 33 states across the union. So there's definitely something close enough to, for folks to get involved with. Oh, one last question, because I have to ask it, even though I didn't put it in the prompt. Um, it's quite simple. Foreign aid, what's it worth? Foreign aid, what's it worth? Well, to me, and that's how we want our folks to answer it, it's to me, Nick, is that super simply, foreign aid, what's it worth, is showing that America 
cares and can and is leading around the world. So just uh, that's kind of like a simple sentence, but it's just showing that America is full of as a country full of people who care about the rest of the world or engage with the rest of the world. Um, and that we really have a vested investment understanding in making the world a safer and better place. And that's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast. I'd like to thank once again my guest Nizar for joining the show today and want to say an extra thank you to USGLC for all their work in promoting American global leadership and once again for putting me on the Next Gen Global Leaders program. Thanks, of course, as always to our listeners and readers of the blog. Be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com, like and share on our Facebook page, or tweet us at orientalistdxp. And again, go check out the USGLC website at usglc.org. Thanks again, and we'll see you all next time.